podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, As Jeremiah alluded to, uh, if you are new here, welcome. Uh, A little bit of a background on our our church here. So we are one church, uh, First United Methodist Church, and we have three distinct communities. So this is the Andover community, uh, and then we have the downtown community that meets on High Street in downtown Lexington, and then a little south of that, we have the Offerings community. And so I am actually the pastor. My name is Taylor. I am the pastor of the Offerings community, uh, and during our summer sermon series on the catechism, uh, we're rotating our preachers around, and so you get to meet uh, all the people on our pastoral lead team and several leaders as a part of our a greater First Church community. So it just is a privilege and a blessing to be able to be here and, and worshiping with you all uh, this morning. Uh, so we are working through our Echo Catechism, uh, just a really short catechism. You might have seen it uh, either when you walked in or on the, the uh, stand there. Uh, and in the spirit of the Echo Catechism, the idea behind it was that the, the leader would ask a question and then the responder would respond with the answer to the question, sort of like an echo. And so the leader says, ask this question about the faith, uh, and then the responders would respond with the answer to that faith. So in that same sort of spirit, uh, I'm gonna ask that you take out your bulletin or your little uh, echo catechism if you want, and right underneath my sermon title, you'll see two questions. And so I'm going to ask a question, and then I'll ask for you all to respond with the answer. So question 3.8. In what condition are people born? Question 3.9. What is the misery of this condition? Please pray with me. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. In a recent interview with Christianity Today, Scott Derrickson, a well-known movie director and a devout Christian, called horror the perfect Christian genre. Horror stories, stories that look frankly at the dark, broken, and evil aspects of the world, Derrickson argued, dealt with the supernatural better than any other genre, and in their frank and honest recognition of evil, these stories actually distinguish what is true and good and beautiful. Now, I don't know about you all. (laughs) I see some shaking of heads. Me too. I have never been a huge fan of horror movies. Uh, When I was younger, I remember being terrified by a scene in Jumanji. 
And if a movie that wasn't supposed to scare me scared me, I knew that my bar was really, really low about what I could handle. Uh, if I am going to the movies and I'm going to spend $12 on a movie ticket, I'm going to see the next hilarious buddy cop comedy, the next Marvel movie where the superhero wins at the end, or a rich mystery where everything is solved, wrapped up nice and neatly before the credits roll. I'm not going to see a horror movie that is going to put me on the edge of my seat the whole time and force me to keep a light on in my room for the next week. I watch, horror, or I watch movies uh, to relax, not to be injected with adrenaline and wondering what that shadow in the corner of my bedroom is. But it's precisely that desire to flee from the world that Derrickson argues makes horror such a good genre. Horror negates the denial and escapism that is often at the core of our everyday lives. We like the romantic comedies, we like the superhero movies, and the, the mysteries that are solved at the end. We don't like admitting that there is evil in this world, evil potentially beyond our ability to understand or beyond our ability to control. Movies about exorcisms and ghosts, demons and monsters remind us just how vulnerable we are in this world. After watching something terrifying, when I lie in my bed and stare at my ceiling with bloodshot eyes, it's because my very world has been intruded upon. Could such a thing happen to me? The American novelist Flannery O'Connor argues that to the heart of hearing you shout, and for the almost blind you draw large and startling figures, and that is what horror stories do. If we are settled in the humdrums of everyday life, we do not know the depths of brokenness around us. Horror allows us to see that evil is not out there in the dark and scary places of the world but rather exists around here in our boring and everyday lives. One of the main plot points of the first season of Stranger Things, a popular horror TV series on Netflix, is that in the sleepy little town of Hawkins, Indiana, a portal to a dark world has opened. A demonic creature seeking only violence and destruction has escaped this world and has attacked and killed citizens of this small town. The creature has no rationality, uses no language, has no moral compass. It only exists to pull people from this world into its dark one as an act of violence and destruction. Even in a small town where nothing happens, evil is just a portal away. Horror stories don't just describe evil as a force that is external, though. Uh, they also describe the strange interplay between external evil forces and internal ones. In his 19th century novel, The Turn of the Screw, the novelist Henry James tells the story of a private tutor who cares for a troubled, wealthy family in London. She begins to see ghosts around the property and eventually loses her grip on reality to devastating consequences. In the classic story, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the titular character Dr. Jekyll struggles against his evil urges and vices and develops a serum to split off this aspect of himself. 
But the result is the creation of Mr. Hyde, this evil alter ego who grows stronger and stronger until threatening to finally take over Dr. Jekyll. In one case, evil is shown as an external force or creation capable of breaking into our everyday lives, even in the unlikeliest of places. In another case, evil is a corrupting influence, playing off of our own vulnerabilities and persuading us to commit great sin. Evil is not just a brutish force, however. Monsters are not just terrorizing ghosts or violent creatures from dark dimensions. Sometimes horror carries with it a cold rationality. In Dante's Inferno, the main character Dante makes his way to the depths of hell by traveling through hell's nine circles. The early circles are where those carnal and irrational sinners are kept, those committing wicked acts of lust, gluttony, and greed. But as Dante continues down, he begins to meet the coldly rational the heretics, the fraudulent, and the treacherous. Coldly in the literal sense, hell does not get hotter for Dante, but actually becomes freezing cold. In the ninth and final circle, the circle where all traitors reside, Dante sees them frozen in a lake of ice. In his commentary on this passage, John Ciardi remarks, the treacheries of these souls were denials of love, which is God, and of all human warmth. Only the remorseless dead center of the ice will serve to express their natures. As they denied God's love, so are they furthest removed from the light and warmth of his son. As they denied all human ties, so are they bound only by the unyielding ice. Here there is no externalized evil, no corrupted beasts ready to attack an innocent victim. There is only the self turned away from the love of God and the warmth of human relationships and to borrow a phrase from Augustine turned in upon itself. Corrupted, and lacking any other objects to corrupt, the self can only take out this corruption upon itself over and over and over again. And it is here that we begin to see some of the deeper truths of sin and evil. Sin and evil is not a force equal and opposite to God and goodness. We do not live in a world where good and evil duke it out behind the scenes, where the devil and God are two opposing beings, each fighting over the right to our souls. No, rather, evil is a lack, a corruption, a deprivation of what is good and true and beautiful. In his own short catechism, the early church theologian Augustine dedicates an entire chapter to the problem of evil. In it, he writes, corruption is nothing more than the deprivation of the good. Evils, therefore, only have their source in the good, and unless they are parasitic on something good, they are not anything at all. There is no other source whence an evil thing can come to be. So what is Augustine saying here? God created the world good. You heard this from Pastor Todd last week. God created the world good and everything that exists, everything that has a substance is good and reflective of God's love. Evil does not exist in and of itself. 
It is not an equal creation, it's a perversion of God's creation. There is no such thing as an evil object, rather there is only a good object that has been twisted and corrupted. One could think here of the horrific character of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Once he was a hobbit, just like Frodo and Sam, but after spending too much time with the corrupted and corrupting ring, his body becomes more and more grotesque, his mind more and more fragmented and fractured. He still retains his hobbit form, it just becomes twisted and perverted. Evil is not a counterbalanced force against the good, it's a perversion of the good. The root of all evil, the root of all sin, is the self turning away from our creator God who is love and turning inward. Vengeance is a perversion of justice. Gossip and backbiting are perversions of honest communication. Envy is a perversion of love. And the wrath of God is to give us what we want. C.S. Lewis once wrote, the damned are in one sense successful, rebels to the end. The, hell, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. And Paul writes to the Galatians, as we just read, if you bite and devour each other, why or you will be destroyed by each other. If you live with only malice and violence and desire only malice and violence, God ultimately lets you have it. You are free to the bitter end to have exactly what you want, to be frozen solid in a lake of ice, devoid of all love. Okay, so instead of believing that the devil and God are duking it out behind the scenes for my soul in some sort of cosmic battle, I just need to understand sin as the perversion of love and choose to love God and love my neighbor. Aha, but we have reached our final problem to the problem of evil. How do we know what love is if no one has loved us? Often when we think about, uh, the, the German philosopher Theodore Adorno once wrote, to be implicated in a calamity without having done anything wrong is the very essence of original sin. Often when we think about original sin, we think about a stain upon an individual, or we think of total depravity, this belief that humans are totally depraved in thought, word, and deed. But Adorno is right here. The problem of the fall is that in one act of disobedience, the world was fractured. The effects of sin are far and wide. God, who is love, cannot be in the presence of bitterness, hatred, malice, and vice. We estranged ourselves from God, perverted his very image within us. We were successful rebels, but little did we know that the fruit in the garden would be the poison that we would continually eat. We are born into a world of backbiting, bitterness, and vice, a world of selves turned in upon themselves. Even having done nothing wrong, we are wounded by the world. And we learn very quickly to either shut down or to fight back. But this only produces more violence, and the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. We are trapped, trapped in a world that Satan rules, a world of wickedness and vice, backbiting and malice, desperate for love and unable to love, desperate for God and yet fearful and rebellious toward him. We are caught in a calamity. 
And this is why we can't save ourselves. We could not love God because as long as we live in this corrupt and fallen world without intervention, we do not know what love is because no one has ever loved us with the pure love of God. Without intervention, others cannot love us either because they too are caught in this calamity with us, wounded by the same fallen world. Such a recognition of the fallenness of this world leads us only to cry out as the prophet Jeremiah did, the heart is deceitful above all things and without cure. Who can know it? Thankfully, we don't live in a horror movie. Evil and corruption, sin and death do not have the final word. When we human beings created in the image of God yet caught in a calamity turned away from God and our love failed, God's love remained steadfast. Into this world of calamity, this world of decay and corruption, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Our Lord and Savior received the wounds of this corrupted world. He suffered the effects of backbiting, gossip, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. He was betrayed, abandoned, and mocked. His followers saw their own human frailty and vulnerability on Jesus when he was arrested and crucified and turned away from it and turned away from him. As Christ's flesh was pierced through, his hands nailed to a cross and a crown of thorns pressed into his skull, he did not respond to this pain with violence. Instead, he recognized this calamity that we were caught in. Appealing to the Father, Christ says, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't know yet what love really is. Christ was obedient to the Father, obedient to the love of the Father for his creation, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And it is this act of love, not returning violence with violence, but suffering it for the sake of love, that transforms everything. It transforms everything everything. Freed from sin, without, <laughs> without intervention, we cannot love ourselves, our neighbor, or our God, but Christ has intervened. Because of the radical love of Christ, evil is exhausted. Goodness is purified, and love is magnified. Because Christ loved us, we now can love others. First John 4 tells us this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into this world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God because we couldn't, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is how we push back on the calamity of this world. Freed from sin and death, we now can love with the abounding generosity of the Father. We can see malice and backbiting, hatred and discord, as perversions of a desire for love and meet such things not with the heavy hand of violence, but rather with the same generous, uh, same generous spirit of Christ. We can suffer these and meet evil with charity. We are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit who stirs up for us love and affection for God and neighbor and sustains us 
when the calamity of this world feels like it encroaches in upon us. And we can look forward to that day when God will right every wrong and make all things new. When we will no longer be caught in this calamity, but rather have no obstacle in our love for one another. This morning, as we come forward to receive the Eucharist, we receive the very presence of Christ in the the grape juice and the bread of communion. When we do that, uh, we hold out our hands and receive the bread, dip it into the grape juice, and receive both at the same time as an act of God's gift to us. We do not take from the table. God freely gives it to us. And when we receive God's grace, let us turn our hearts to the one whose love has never failed, who took on flesh to rescue us from this cycle of violence, from this broken and fallen world, and the one who is making all things new. Amen.